The coronavirus pandemic is now a national emergency. Two very big words. Corona anxiety? It's a threat we can't see, but the virus is changing the way we live for the foreseeable future. So I think people should be aware and concerned and take uh, good public health measures. Uh, I don't think panicking is is useful for, for anybody to do, but I think people should certainly take this seriously. Congress is struggling to respond to the economic fallout. You could have, uh, you know, a quote, bailout. People hate that term here on Capitol Hill for the travel industry, for the airline industry. And with another round of presidential primary stays away, the campaign trail goes quiet. Given the, the, the need for social distancing, we may see much lower turnout. We may see a change in voting patterns. With John Decker, Rachel Sutherland and Chad Pergram, I'm Jared Halpern from Washington. to believe me, and not just me, in times of national uncertainty, a national emergency, as it's been declared by the president, you need to trust the information coming from news sources and government sources. That has been tested this week, partly because of partisanship, ideology, and an eroding of confidence in institutions. But it's also been tested because government officials have not always been on the same page, offering various assessments of the risk posed by the coronavirus and how to mitigate and contain it. So we're spending all four segments of this podcast exploring the government response, and we will start at the top with President Trump. To unleash the full power of the federal government in this effort today, I am officially declaring a national emergency. Two very big words. During a Rose Garden news conference Friday afternoon, the president said he is increasing partnerships with private firms to make coronavirus testing kits more available to those who need it. We want to make sure that those who need a test can get a test very safely, quickly, and conveniently. But we don't want people to take a test if if we feel that they shouldn't be doing it. And we don't want everyone running out and taking only if you have certain symptoms. That announcement came days after a rare prime time Oval Office address, a time and place reserved for the most serious moments of a presidency. President Trump announced major travel restrictions. We will be suspending all travel from Europe to the United States for the next 30 days. The new rules will go into effect Friday at midnight. These restrictions will be adjusted subject to conditions on the ground. There will be exemptions for Americans who have undergone appropriate screenings. And these prohibitions will not only apply to the tremendous amount of trade and cargo, but various other things as we get approval. The problem was what he said and what is being done weren't the same. Clarifications were required almost immediately. So that's where we begin this week at the White House and our correspondent there, John Decker. I think if the president had an opportunity to do a do-over, he would do a do-over. There were mistakes that were made in the president's national address to the nation, Uh, one of which uh, being uh, the idea that not only was this travel ban that affects uh, Europe, uh, not only does it uh, cover individuals or passengers, the president said it also covered trade uh, and cargo. And the president had to fix that almost immediately on Twitter. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security had to put out a statement correcting what the president said, which was contained in his teleprompter. So that was one of those mistakes. The other one being 
uh, the idea that the president uh, indicated that there would be no co-pays, not only for testing of coronavirus uh, around the country, but for treatment of coronavirus around the country. That, too, was a mistake. That is not something that the nation's insurance companies, when they met with the president, agreed to do. Yeah, the travel restrictions had a little bit more, more nuance, too, right? Doesn't apply to U.S. citizens, permanent residents, their families. That's exactly right. And, you know, there are some problems even with this particular travel ban. The president said that the travel ban, as it relates to uh, non-U.S. citizens from Europe, uh, was because the epicenter of the coronavirus had moved. It moved from Asia. It moved from uh, China uh, and South Korea uh, to the European Union, essentially, to uh, 26 uh, countries. And uh, most of those cases are occurring in places like Italy, France, and Germany. And the president decided to uh, have this travel ban impact 26 countries uh, in the, the so-called Schengen zone. Uh, and two countries would be exempted, one being Ireland, the other one being the UK. Let's talk about the testing. Uh, he mentioned that, as you point out, um, had to sort of correct it as far as how it's being paid for. But the president, not just in that address, but really throughout this week, sending out tweets even on Friday morning, has suggested that testing's ramping up. People are going to be able to get tests if they want to test. Dr. Anthony Fauci said that's not true. He used the word failing when he told members of Congress where this country is when it comes to the ability to test the amount of people who need to be tested for coronavirus. The system does not, is not really geared to what we need right now, what you are asking for. That is a failing. And a that, failing, yes. It, it is a failing. I mean, let's so. admit it. And Dr. Fauci is someone who is widely respected in the medical community. I've known Dr. Fauci for 20 years, and he is uh, literally the world's leading expert when it comes to infectious diseases. So he has no reason to provide spin. Uh, and when asked uh, this particular question under oath before Congress, he, he gave it and told it like it is. Uh, the, the testing that was described as being available to everybody uh, a week ago just hasn't materialized. And there are people out there uh, who may exhibit symptoms associated with coronavirus who can't get a test to confirm they have coronavirus. And that's obviously very problematic. I'm curious then, why is there a disconnect? You know, in these times of uncertainty, a, you know, a, a national emergency, um, why is the administration struggling to speak with one voice? I don't have a good answer for that, other than the fact that uh, the president uh, likes to be the voice when it comes to just about every issue uh, affecting the White House, uh, whether it's a domestic issue uh, or whether it's uh, an issue having to do with foreign affairs. This is an issue that is a, uh, as the president will likely soon announce, a national emergency, uh, and the president wants to be the voice on this. Uh, and he is sometimes undercut with his tweets, with his statements that he's given, impressive availabilities. Some of the messages coming from the medical professionals, the health professionals. And that uh, obviously is not something that you want to convey to the public, uh, which does feel a great deal of anxiety associated with all the effects of the coronavirus. You have covered 
a lot of administrations. This is not the first global pandemic that a U.S. president has had to deal with, the first that this president has had to deal with. How does the response that you've seen over the last week, two weeks from this administration compare with what you've seen in similar situations in previous administrations? Well, I don't think it's a fair um, a fair comparison in this sense, Jared. I don't think it's a fair comparison because what we're dealing with right now as it relates to the coronavirus is really unprecedented. There have indeed been other um, pandemics, uh, but nothing that is on the scale of what we're seeing right now. I think a better comparison, actually, Jared, you know, just going back in experiences that, that I've had covering the White House is the experience that I had covering the White House in the aftermath of 9-11, because the same or similar sense of anxiety that Americans felt in the aftermath of 9-11 is very similar to the anxiety that I detect that exists right now uh, with the coronavirus. And in the aftermath of 9-11, Americans really did look to uh, President George W. Bush for leadership. Uh, and I think that he stepped up and provided that leadership. And, you know, I, I also believe that there, there was a great sense of unity that existed in the aftermath of 9-11. And that same sense of unity does not exist now. We, we already see, you know, some of the uh, political back and forth that exists between Republicans and Democrats, between the president and congressional Democrats. That is not something that we saw at all in the aftermath of 9-11. There seems to be a lot more distrust of one another. I think that's a good point, John. John Decker, thanks so much. Excellent uh, reporting this week. I know that it is not over for you. Um, it is the president, the White House, the federal government continues to respond to the uh, coronavirus outbreak. So I'll let you get back to work. Stay safe, uh, stay healthy, wash your hands. You too, Jared. Thanks a lot. I'll talk to you real soon. threat we can't see. But it's easy to see that Americans are on edge. The coronavirus is changing the way we live for the foreseeable future. I'm Rachel Sutherland. I just wash my hands a lot. Stay inside. It looks like there's almost nobody here today. You know, everybody's scared. I'm worried about the cancellation of flights and stuff like that because, you know, I want to go on vacation. So that I'm a little anxious about. It seems the virus is all people can talk about. As I made my usual trek to and from work near Capitol Hill, I could hear people talking about it on street corners, in line at eateries, less busy than usual, and at my local grocery store, where I found myself among the toilet paper stragglers searching for a roll or two. President Trump has declared a national state of emergency. The U.S. Capitol is closed except for official business. Broadway is dark and Disney has shuttered their magic kingdoms, not to mention the impact on the world of sports with a month of March sans college basketball madness. A number of states have closed their entire school systems, leaving parents scrambling. There are a lot of unanswered questions. Where are the tests for coronavirus? Will cities be quarantined? What if people can't go to work? Will hospitals be able to help everyone who's sick? What about people living paycheck to paycheck with no sick leave? And what's going on with the stock market? Leaders here in Washington have been trying to answer those questions. Dr. Anthony Fauci, a top official at the National Institutes of Health, told Congress the U.S. cannot process kits in high numbers like some other nations. The system does not, is not really geared to what we need right now, what you are asking for. 
That is a failing. Dr. Fauci later told Fox and Friends too much emphasis is being put on testing while conceding it would be better if kits were more widely available. But that should not prevent us from doing the things that would prevent you from getting infected. Dr. Fauci stressed the need for social distancing to help stem the spread of the virus, including telework and avoiding large crowds and unnecessary travel. He also said we're going to see an acceleration of testing in the coming weeks as private labs come on board. The House and Senate have been discussing compromised coronavirus relief legislation and have canceled a scheduled recess next week to work on it. Fox's Jessica Rosenthal talked with Jesse Bloom, professor and virologist at the Fred Hutch Cancer Research Center for the Fox News Rundown podcast. Well, I certainly think that uh, people should be concerned about this virus. There's a lot of evidence that the SARS coronavirus 2 is spreading very widely around the world. And in my view, it's likely to mean meet the definition of a pandemic in terms of the fact that there'll probably soon be infections in almost all countries in the world. So I think people should be aware and concerned and take uh, good public health measures. Uh, I don't think panicking uh, is is useful for, for anybody to do, but I think people should certainly take this seriously. As a virologist, what makes this virus so unknown, new, genetically unique? One of the reasons that the virus is spreading so fast around the world is that people haven't been exposed to it in the past. Uh, Typically, when people are infected with the virus, they then build up some immunity, which will protect them against future infections. But right now, very few people have any type of immunity to this virus because it's just starting to spread around the world. Tell me about some of these headlines I've been reading about there being more than one strain. Is that that's inaccurate? I've heard some people scared that, you know, maybe the strain that they think is happening in Italy is maybe more aggressive than the one in China. Can you can you clear up this uh, this notion of strains? Uh, When viruses replicate and spread from person to person, they get mutations. And most of the time, these mutations are not anything to be worried about. In fact, everything in biology gets mutations. So when, when, you know, my daughter has some mutations relative to me, but most of these mutations maybe don't have, have much consequence. And it's the same thing when the virus spreads, the virus that a new person gets may have a mutation relative to the previous person. So we can use these mutations to separate the viruses into how they're related. And we can talk about how there are sort of different clades or subgroups, so viruses that have gotten slightly different mutations. But at this point, we have no evidence that any of these mutations are making the virus any different in terms of its ability to spread or cause oh. disease. So there's okay. been a lot of speculation that maybe the virus in one part of the world is worse in some way than viruses in the other part of the world. And there is currently no reason to think that's true. Uh, no one has shown that any of the mutations in this virus cause any uh, implications for the disease and spread of the virus. Interesting. Okay. That's a, a little bit calming. Um, I've heard the mortality rate is anywhere from 1.7% to 3.4%, maybe even as close as 5% in Italy. But with so few tested at this stage, how can we how can we really know the mortality rate? Who, who's doing this math for us? Yes, yeah, so this, is, this is a very complicated uh, question. There's some very smart people, very smart epidemiologists uh, who, are, who are working on this. I'm not one of them, but I've read what they've written, so I can kind of tell you, tell you a little bit about that. So what most people are really most interested in is what's called the infection fatality rate. So that's the question of if you get infected, how likely are you to die? And this is very hard to estimate during an ongoing viral outbreak, sort of for two reasons. First of all, we can't identify everyone who's gotten infected. We tend to you know, be best at identifying the people who get 
very sick because they're more likely to come in and seek medical care. Yeah. So that will tend to make us overestimate how bad the infection fatality rate is. And then the other confounding factor is right now the virus is spreading very rapidly. So there may be some people who've been infected that haven't yet died, but will eventually die. And so that would make us underestimate. So all I can tell you is that the best estimates that at this point have been put out there by, by leading sort of epidemiologists, people like Adam Kucharski or uh, Stephen Riley, are that the infection and fatality rate for this virus is probably somewhere between 0.5% and uh, maybe 2%. And that varies uh, a lot, probably based in part on how overwhelmed the healthcare system is. So if there's a massive outbreak in a region and they're not able to effectively treat many of the patients, that's going to increase the infection and fatality rate. And then obviously this, this number that I'm telling you is, is averaged across uh, the population. And we certainly know that the infection fatality rate is going to be much higher for individuals who are, let's say, 75 years old than for yeah. individuals who are 25 years old. Should, should we Go take ahead. any comfort in the idea that, for example, in China, disease, the number of infections seem to be decreasing and have been decreasing for what seems like, you know, a couple of weeks now? Yeah, so China, uh, it does appear, based on the, the numbers that are being reported from China, that the number of infections have decreased a lot in China over the last uh, few weeks. And a lot of that, I believe, is because China has taken extremely sort of severe public health measures. Uh, those measures include, you know, quarantining people, shutting down large cities, et cetera. And, and so we do know that those very uh, extreme measures uh, can reduce the spread of the virus. And that's simply mm. a matter of if people who are infected aren't coming in contact with other people, the virus is not going to spread. And there are some other countries that have also taken pretty, uh, pretty strong public health measures, and they've uh, been able to somewhat reduce the spread of the virus. So, so I think what this shows us is, is not that we should not worry about the virus, but that if we if we do some of the things that epidemiologists are suggesting we do, such as, you know, do social distancing, which means avoid uh, scenarios where we're likely to come in contact with large numbers of other people, things like that, spread the virus, you know, wash our hands, use, use good hygiene and good sanitation, that can certainly reduce the spread of the virus. President Trump and the executive branch of government have a lot of authority to take action during a national emergency. But there is still plenty only Congress can do, including spending money. That's been the main focus for lawmakers this week, trying to settle not only the coronavirus pandemic, but the economic uncertainty that has come with it. A House Democratic bill negotiated with Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin would provide free coronavirus testing for people who need it. It would secure at least two weeks of paid medical leave or sick leave for coronavirus patients isolating themselves and offer other financial assistance like unemployment insurance and food stability. A real concern for many communities with low-income students who rely on school lunches and are now out of school for weeks because of closings. Here's how Florida Democrat Donna Shalala explained it to me. What we're talking about is this is a mental health bill. This is a bill to reassure the American people that we have their backs. That's exactly what this bill is. Many of those ideas do have broad bipartisan support, though. There are always questions about how much it will cost, how it will be paid for, and if there are better ways to stimulate the economy. Republican lawmakers have suggested tax credits. President Trump wants a payroll tax cut through the end of the year to increase take-home pay for workers. Fox News Capitol Hill correspondent Chad Pergram has been following the minute-by-minute negotiations between Speaker Pelosi and the Treasury Secretary. And as always, 
ways offers some important historical context. Republicans in the House and the Senate, they want to make sure that the president is on board. Remember that President Trump, you know, just uh, threw Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader, under the bus. Uh, He worked out a bipartisan agreement on FISA just a couple of days ago with, you know, Bill Barr, the attorney general. It passed through the House, bipartisan vote. And then he said, no, we don't want that in the Senate. And so the Senate has basically, you know, gone dark on that. Uh, You know, remember Mitch McConnell learned the hard way in December of 2018 on a bill to keep the government open. So, you know, when we talk to Republicans about what their objections are here, one Republican source said it was technical. And even the president in his press conference was unclear as to the specifics. He said, well, you know, they're not really giving enough, but we don't know what that means. It's very vague. One thing that we know that the president wants that has not been included in any of the proposals we have seen is this uh, tax cut holiday, something that Congress did a few years, payroll tax holiday, something that Congress did um, a a couple of years ago, as I recall, with some heavy lifting. It was a battle royale with Republicans fighting Republicans. And it was around Christmas because, as you know, only the the big battles uh, unfold (laughs) on Capitol Hill around the holidays. It was pretty rough. And, and, and because you have people in the Republican Party who want to cut taxes, but then you have the fiscal hawks who are very concerned about driving up the deficit. This would add about $1 trillion to $1.3 trillion to the deficit. That's staggering right there, that alone. Now, now you would probably make some of that back up, but still, that's a problem. Well, and the other argument that's been made in previous uh, tax, uh, payroll tax holidays is that this is a good way to, to inject money into the economy. People get more money in their paycheck. They're going to spend that money. This is a different situation, Chad. People are quarantined for two weeks. I mean, schools are closed. You can't go to concerts. You can't go to sporting events. The economic impact's a little different. Well, and that's where people were talking about the price of gasoline dropping precipitously. They tell people not to travel, yet where do you travel? And if it gets too low, you know, this is where you have to look at these broader macroeconomic issues, that if you have people, if you have people not willing you know, to, or not able to leave their homes, not willing to spend money, you know, and if you get things that are too low, then the, the company, whatever commodity or product they produce, they're not making money. They can't employ people. It, it's this vicious circle. Let's talk about what there is, at least we believe, bipartisan uh, cooperation on. Um, being uh, able to pay for, for these tests if you need one seems to have broad bipartisan support. That's right. That's probably the easy one. Uh, There are some disputes over how long the paid leave should be, how long that should be, even the way the states were awarded assistance uh, with Medicaid, the way they've handled that with other natural disasters. So that's an issue as well. Uh, You know, and it's a big, big bill. We don't really know, you know, what the dimension of this would be. But I want to go back to one fundamental point. If it's such a struggle to get Democrats and Republicans on board to pass this bill, what about tier two? Right. Tier you make three. a good point. This was this supposed, supposed to be, to be the, the easy, easy one. one. Yeah. That's right. And so what are, are those other tiers? I mean, what are they looking to do next? Is this major economic stimulus? Is this more public health spending like we saw earlier uh, in this process? Could be just that, you know, a stimulus like in uh, February of 2009 after the economic collapse. Uh, you could have, uh, you know, a quote, bailout. People hate that term here on Capitol Hill for the travel industry, for the airline industry. Uh, you know, all of the above. I mean, they have. But, but those things usually take a long time because you have to see what the situation is, how dire it is, what the gravity is, and then go back with a solution. And again, the legislative process is generally not quick. You know, Dodd-Frank, which reformed for good or ill the financial laws after what happened with the financial collapse in 2008, 
was not approved until the summer of 2010. You know, you don't turn the ship that fast. And here's a situation where, I mean, it seems like there is a need for urgency in a way that Congress doesn't work that way, I think, is the point you're making. And and, and that's why this is a little bit like TARP in the sense that that was the initial foam that they were trying to spray on the fire back in 2008. To be clear, the bill that the House has been dealing with is nothing like TARP in terms of bailout or or, or rescuing, you know, troubled assets. But the size and dimension and impact and scope is right in that category. You know, we have to sort of mention where we are. You may hear some of the background noise behind us because we're speaking right off the uh, rotunda. Well, and they're doing maintenance in there because they were supposed to be on recess. Not only that, but the Capitol is now closed for public tours for the rest of this month. There are several lawmakers who have self-quarantined or not here to participate in voting should they need to vote on some of these things. Have you ever seen anything like this? Not really. Uh, I mean, it's amazing how vacant the building is. Some aides, some smattering of lawmakers, not really a lot, mostly journalists and police officers. It's remarkable. And, and, and here's the other thing. You know, the, the Capitol is closed to tours. A lot of people thought this was a big vector because you had so many tourists coming in. People were very critical of the leadership that they allowed it to go on so long. People from, you know, every corner of the globe coming in. Uh, that's, you know, probably not healthy when on one hand the office of the attending physician was saying minimize contact, uh, you know, telling lawmakers specifically don't mingle in large groups. And you couldn't even cut through the Capitol Rotunda because it was spring break here. So uh, this is very different in that regard. But here's the other problem. The Senate isn't here. There's some concern here that they might not be able to have enough members here to vote on bills, to deal with these issues if people start to get sick or they put other travel restrictions in place after a period of time, you know, you start to run out of literally the track. Uh, That's a concern because you don't know how many people are really going to be sick or have to stay and can't come to Capitol Hill. Steny Hoyer, the majority leader in the House of Representatives, made a point in the past week that he and the House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, opposed the idea of voting remotely. They talked about that a little bit during 9-11, and that's not going to be the case. Chad, have a great week. Thank you. The coronavirus pandemic should not be about politics, but this is the From Washington podcast, and we're not going to pretend politics won't play a role in a national emergency during an election year. The immediate impact, of course, is no major campaign rallies as public health officials warn against large gatherings of people tightly packed together in close quarters like an arena. So starting this week, every major presidential campaign, the former Vice President Joe Biden's, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, and President Trump's have all postponed or canceled upcoming events with support. Campaign staff are working remotely from home if possible. It's adding more uncertainty in what has already been a fluid presidential race. New questions about the health of candidates, their leadership in a crisis, and how to rely on voters in next week's elections who may be wary about public interaction of any kind. So let's finish up this week's discussion with my usual in-studio guest on election nights, Fox News political analyst Josh Crossauer. Well, we should make note, Josh, that we are uh, using this new app uh, that that we're testing out here uh, that allows each of us to have this podcast quality recording with us being uh, remote. Neither one of us are, are in a studio together. Both of us are um, keeping that social distancing that is now so much a part of the American lifestyle, really the global lifestyle. And that's 
going to impact, Josh, the way that these campaigns now move forward? There is nothing on the books as far as campaigns are con- as far as campaign rallies are, are concerned for Bernie Sanders, for Joe Biden, even President Trump has canceled big rallies. Uh, this debate that we will have on Sunday night is going to be in CNN studio here in Washington. There will be no live audience for anything like that. Explain to me what what campaigns are supposed to do. Uh, they don't know, and they are experimenting with virtual uh, campaign uh, appearances where the candidate appears via Skype or some other other, other platform where they can beam in to, to, to voters. But campaigning will not look the same in the foreseeable future. And I think one of the most immediate impact isn't, isn't going to take place on the campaign trail. It'll take place at the voting booths. Uh, Tuesday, we have four big states holding primaries in Illinois, Ohio. Arizona and and Florida, four states with a lot of seniors voting, uh, many in person, and that there's going to be a big question mark on how many older voters are going to be f- feel secure showing up at at a voting booth, given the, the the need for social distancing. We may see much lower turnout. We may see a change in voting patterns uh, just based on on the warnings that that many officials have been giving about the need for distancing during the during this uh, crisis. Yeah, that's a good point. You mentioned one of those states, Ohio. Schools are closed in Ohio for, I think, at least two weeks. One of the states that, that's taken that step. So it also raises questions about the availability of some of these uh, regular uh, voting boots. And so we'll see how all of that plays out. I want to talk about what the candidates themselves are doing. We have seen now not rallies, but these sort of national addresses that both the former Vice President Joe Biden and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders have done. We will lead by science. World Health Organization now has officially, officially declared COVID-19 a pandemic. Downplaying it, being overly dismissive, or spreading misinformation is only going to hurt us and further advantage the spread of the disease. In the midst of this unprecedented moment, We need to listen to the scientists, to the researchers, to the medical folks, not to politicians. This, I suppose, is an opportunity for them to to show what they would look like in a national emergency as president. Yeah, I mean, we're not talking about the same type of campaign we saw a couple weeks ago. This is sort of, especially for Joe Biden, a real uh, opportunity for him to show presidential level leadership. And I think we saw the first uh, attempt at that uh, with, his, with his speech in Wilmington, Delaware, specifically about the coronavirus. And, and, and uh, he was trying to contrast his style of leadership with, with the president's uh, leadership on this front. So, you know, I think everything will be judged in a different lens going forward. It's not going to be about scoring points among different demographic groups and who's going to have the biggest rallies. It's going to be about which candidate sounds more presidential, which candidate is best equipped to do the job. And you're going to be seeing a lot of these split split screen shots, perhaps, between the president and his, his attempts to, to deal with the crisis, to calm the public, and with these challengers that want to hold the most powerful job in the land. The um, question also is what the, the, the country looks like. It's, it's really hard to predict, obviously, what the coronavirus um, uh, outbreak here will, will look like. We, we know that things are going to be different 
at least through through April. Most of these closings are, are sort of at least until April, the second week of April, and and we'll see, I suppose, what this this um, uh, epidemic looks like past that point. Uh, this pandemic, I should say, looks like past that point. Um, we do know that in the the immediate uh, future, the the economy has been just absolutely rattled. Um, the economy has been the big thing that President Trump ha- has focused on. And in really that one area where even if Republicans aren't entirely on board with some of his rhetoric, with some of his tweets, they love the economic output. What what pressure does this put on on President Trump, on, on the administration to respond to to not just the health crisis, but to this growing economic crisis? Well, I, I, the reality is that the sooner the public is calmed by the president's handling of the health crisis, in all likelihood, the markets will be calmed a, a, as well. And we, we saw the markets drop precipitously after the president's somewhat shaky uh, address to the nation this week. And, and I, you know, there's a lack of confidence in, in the country's ability to distribute enough tests for the coronavirus. There, but once that gets handled... Belatedly, I think the markets will respond accordingly. So the president's challenge has been, and I think some of his missteps have been that he's treated this as a financial crisis as much as a public health crisis, maybe putting the stock market ahead of the, the public health needs of the country. Um, now, there, there, there's reporting that the president's going to be announcing that he will declare a national emergency, which may may, may soothe the markets, may maybe a, give a public boost uh, to, to how, how the administration is handling this. But look, I mean, I think the, the mar- if the president is interested in making sure the markets don't get rattled, don't look so volatile, I think the handling of the public health challenges is the first and foremost uh, priority for, for, for the president. There could be some lingering economic impacts, though, if people are still not comfortable flying, going out in public places. We, we have already seen what this is doing to, you know, the sports and entertainment industries. Um that's going to last longer than the health crisis, won't it? There, there likely will be a long-term economic impact. Now, look, in a best-case scenario, if, if we could get through this in a couple months, maybe, maybe the, the those engines of the economy get, get moving again. Maybe people go back to flying, traveling, going on cruises. They'll be going to restaurants. You know, th- this may be a short-term dip if the, the, the mitigation, if, if we can get a handle on this, in enough time, we don't know what the future is going to look like. But look, the risk, as you point out, Jared, is is that we may head into a recession. That we 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 look just think a month ago, the economy looked very strong. We were hardly talking about coronavirus. Uh, the president's reelection outlook looked a lot more favorable. Within just a week, two weeks' time, everything is looking a lot more precarious for the president politically, and that's because you're going to see a lot of people feeling a lot less confident both about their economic situation and about their public health situation. And that is always, always really difficult for the party in power, for the president in charge. I want to end with, with the Democratic race where, where we started and sort of separate and apart from from the coronavirus. Though, again, a lot of that's going to play into the idea that these campaigns are going to look and feel and sound very different is the big Loss is that the big losses that Senator Sanders had uh, this past week, particularly in Michigan, a state that he won in uh, the 2016 Democratic primary against uh, uh, Hillary Clinton, 
Um, were you surprised by his decision this week to, to keep moving forward with this campaign? How much longer can he sustain a campaign um, if, you know, you look at the calendar and, you know, the, the states that are on the board are maybe not the most favorable to, to the Sanders uh, to the Sanders campaign? Yeah, li- listening to Sanders' speech earlier in the week, it seemed like he's he's realized that his path to the nomination is very remote, but it sounds like he still wants to make an ideological case, a, so the progressive case uh, for his cause as well as his campaign, and that's why he wants to do this debate, which is now going to be in Washington, D.C., uh, at least scheduled to be in Washington, D.C. this Sunday, uh, so he can actually face Joe Biden and maybe get, get his message across one last time, but the, the leadership of the Democratic Party and even some folks on the liberal end of the spectrum, they want this nomination to be over. They don't want to have internal Democratic fighting at a time when the, the pressure is to, to really take the case to President Trump. You know, the, the delegate math is pretty insurmountable for Bernie Sanders. Uh, he'll have one last chance on Tuesday to maybe show that he's doing better than expected. But uh, the, the states that are voting, Florida, Ohio, Arizona, Illinois. These are all states that Hillary Clinton won against Sanders in 2016. They have older populations, which tend to overwhelmingly favor Joe Biden. So the prospects of him catching up, very remote. The need for the Democratic Party to unify and really start the general election is very high. So even if if, uh, Sanders pushes ahead past uh, Sunday and and, and goes to, to have people go to the polls on Tuesday, I don't think his campaign can last much longer if he doesn't win any states if he doesn't show any 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 progress all right another uh debate uh this weekend some big uh primaries uh next week as well we'll continue to, to talk about it if not in person at least on this uh, new technology josh i appreciate the time great great to be doing this That will do it for the From Washington podcast this week. Next week, so much for the recess. The Senate returns to a much less populated U.S. Capitol to tackle a legislative response to the coronavirus and attempts to renew expired provisions of the FISA law, authorizing surveillance tools that came under criticism in the wake of the Russia investigation. And with news updating as fast as it has the last several weeks, Make regular check-ins to our top-of-the-hour newscast, available on your radio in the Fox News app, along with our daily podcast, The Fox News Rundown. For all of us at Fox News Radio, I'm Jared Halpern, from Washington.